Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It, it split me in one, in one instance. It, it split me in two because I, I had never thought of using different voices to do different things because up until that point, my music making had been a kind of seamless line. What does it mean to bring your whole self to your work? And what is the impact of feeling you can't? I'm Helga Davis. Opera singer Devon Tynes joined me to work through the complexities of making work for an audience who doesn't look like you and trying to bridge the gap of understanding. This is my conversation with Devon Tynes. So lovely to hear your voice. Devon. Helga. Where have you been? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Amen. (laughs) Amen. And amen and amen. Where have I been? I just got back to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I live with my brother. And I've been here through most of the past year and a half. And I've just started going back out into the world Mm -hmm. to do work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've really appreciated this sense of coming back home Hmm. now that I have one, (laughs) I feel like, you know, Mm -hmm. because I've I've been here for most of the past months. And, um, you know, my things are here. I've gotten to set it up in the way that I like. I've got my Marian Anderson and Paul Robeson's over there. <laughs> but also interesting that this this feels like home now. I don't mm-hmm. know that for as long as I've known you that there's been such a place. There's always been a place where your things are, where mm-hmm. you you go back to and leave from to go do the other things that you do in the world. But maybe yes. not necessarily a place that I've heard you use the word home about. Yes. Mm. And um, yeah, it's been really beautiful feeling that. Um, mm. I just came from seeing my grandparents for about three days, which was an old home, um, a place where I grew up. and Which is where? It's in northern Virginia, so about an hour and a half southwest of D.C. out in the country. Out in horse country. With horses? With horses. I kind of rode them. That was something white people did a lot. Um, (laughs) My great-grandfather actually was a pretty noted horse trainer. And so he worked on a really large um, farm there. They call them farms, but they're really ranches. You know, Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of acres. Across from a, a beagle kennel where they they always have at least 500 beagles and they have fox hunts every Saturday. And so, you know, those paintings with the horses and the red velvet outfits and people dashing over hills, that happened across the street (laughs) most most weekends. And so how on earth did you get from there to where... You've been and where you are now. 
Hmm. I was just in LA actually for a little bit working with violinist Jennifer Coe. And we um, were working on this thing called Everything That Rises Must Converge, where we talk about meeting each other in the midst of the classical music world as two minorities. And part of what we've been thinking about while making this is this um, idea that it takes three generations to make an artist. Um, one, to pull the family out of poverty. The second, to educate or to be educated. And then the third has the freedom to be an artist. And um, so when you say, um, you know, how did I get here from there? Um, I've thought about this a little bit, especially now visiting my grandparents. They really allowed me to be really free, I realize more and more. Um, you know, my grandfather was... Um, one of 15 children, and my grandmother grew up on a farm too, and they worked extremely hard. Mm -hmm. And my mother worked hard in her own ways too. And I realized what they had provided me when I was little was freedom, uh, freedom of even expectations, freedom of... Um, not having to decide what I wanted to do vocationally mm -hmm. until I felt it right. And I, I think, you know, I remember sitting in, in our yard with my grandfather after I had graduated college. Um, I went to Harvard for undergrad. And, you know, there's a certain expectation that you're going to jump into the career field. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had gotten to explore a lot of things. And I remember us sitting outside and he said, basically, Son, you don't have to know. Hmm. You just have to try something. <laughs> what do you think mm -hmm. allowed them that kind of, of spaciousness in their thinking? Especially if you end up at a place like Harvard, the expectation that you then might be the one to go into some field that lifts the family out of poverty, that makes a way perhaps in part for yourself, uh, but then for a future generation also, that you would have that responsibility in addition to helping the family and helping yourself. Why were they able to say that to you? You know, I don't fully know, but mm. in, in thinking about it just now, um, and in conversations I have with my brother, everyone in my family works at, at what they do. Everybody in, in their own way, in their own capacity, has a certain work ethic or a drive. And part of what I guess is that they knew that that was part of our family, like in the DNA. Mm -hmm. So I was going to find it whatever it was, and they knew that I'd be driven toward it. So I think my grandfather's kind of freeing but encouraging statement of, you don't have to know what it is, you just have to try something. Um, he knew that I would keep going until I found it. And so were you singing all this time? Yes, but in, in ways that I hadn't identified as performing I grew up going to Providence Baptist Church, which is actually, um, I, I'd say, a four-minute drive <laughs> down the road <laughs> from our house. Music making then, it was, um, it was all for a reason. You were in choir rehearsal for two to four hours every Saturday 
from whatever age you could be there. I remember, you know, being, I guess, a somewhat conscious toddler <laughs> and sitting there and then being in elementary school. And I remember I wallowed on the floor once and that wasn't okay. But, you know, we'd been there for three and a half hours. And I said, it's <laughs> <After> Saturday. <laughs> Let's do anything else. So singing there was... um was was with family. Our our entire choir was made up of extended family. Mm-hmm. You know, by marriage or or by blood, we we were a whole family of maybe twenty two people um, making music for church. Was was classical music part of your upbringing? Also, did someone listen to it in the house? Did you have it at school? It wasn't listened to in the house, but it got slowly injected. Um, I was watching PBS one day, and I remember watching a performance of The Rite of Spring. And I remember seeing the orchestra and being fascinated by violins, you know, the sound and how they they were held under the neck. And um, it was just about time to be in school and pick out an instrument to play. So I picked the violin. And um, I... Yeah, I was I was fascinated, but also um, piano was at the beginning too. My grandfather played piano. Mm-hmm. My grandmother showed me a picture of the band that my grandfather was in in high school called the Swinging Knights, and he played piano. And so we always have had a piano in our house. And um, he he told me once he said one winter when we were snowed in in Virginia because you know sometimes it snows two to four feet in January. We were stuck in the house for a long time. And he said, I wandered over to the piano and plucked a note. And he said, he thinks that note got stuck in my head forever. Because, because then I, I just wanted to figure that out. I wanted oh. to figure out the piano. I wanted lessons. And then it turned into violin. And so because of playing those instruments, I slowly got introduced to classical music. It's a very different voice, though. It's Hmm. all your voice. It all comes from you, from your experience. But it's a different kind of production of sound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When did that start? And was there any conflict with you or your, your peoples about the difference in those sounds and who they were intended for? My grandfather really encouraged me to sing, and he encouraged me to study it or train. He knew I had a big, loud, <laughs> unique voice, and um, he he encouraged me to go to uh, choir, sing in musicals. And then when I got to college, I thought I would take voice lessons, and I found a teacher who is wonderful, and, and we still talk today. But there's one particular lesson when all of that became really clear in terms of what voice to to be or what voice to go toward. And when you're a young singer, you're put through paces of singing the Italian songs and arias. And I chose one called Lasciate Mi Morire that I thought was soulful because it was in a minor key and it was very chromatic. And, um, you know, listening through and playing through all of them, I was like, this is the one, this is the one that I'm going to start with. And I sing the song for her in our lesson. And she said, there's a way that you sing in church that is different than how you sing this music. And 
I really appreciate this woman and she helped me understand a lot of things, but I know that that was difficult for her to tell me. And I know that it was a spade in my head mm. at that moment. What do you mean a spade in your head? It, it split me oh. in one instance. It, it split me in two because mm. I, I had never thought of using different voices to do different things. Mm -hmm. I had never thought consciously or in the front of my mind that there was one way to do this and another way to do that. Because up until that point, my music making had been a kind of seamless line, mm -hmm. you know, from church, adding in the piano, adding in the violin, in high school, playing in state orchestra, um, a Mendelssohn symphony and saying, this is the same as a Kirk Franklin chord progression <laughs> and being so excited about all of those similarities. And I, I had these thoughts of, you know, Mendelssohn crouching behind a church or in a in a field listening to black people sing <laughs> and then writing that into his work um <laughs> you heard right. it here first <laughs> you heard it here first but that was the first time you know someone told me directly there's a difference speak about some other defining moments with regard to that split so I co-created a show called The Black Clown, and it is the setting of a Langston Hughes poem, primarily about a Black man identifying his oppression, coming to terms with it by walking through 300 years of American history, and then um, transcending it by realizing his resilience passed down through time. And we spent about three years just figuring out the music, and then we had staging workshops. And I remember the first one was another one of these moments of contending with this split or this factioning of styles and ways of, <laughs> of being Black. You know, I'd been through the classical music world. I went to Juilliard and I've sung a lot of more modern contemporary classical pieces. And this musical, essentially, is, is the amalgamation of so many different styles from, you know, kind of florid American song to gospel to protest music to jazz and different things. And those things were in my voice in various ways. And it was important to show further facets by inviting other people and their voices into this expression. And the first days of meeting the rest of the cast, who were mainly incredible performers from Broadway, it was like being forced to contend with mm. that split <laughs> that had happened. You know, this, this piece that I had lived with for years and had wrestled with and work to create, but upon having to do the first sing-through, being as nervous and anxiety-ridden as, you know, it, it was like I went back in time 10 years or something. Mm. I don't remember a time, you know, before being a professional that I was ever that nervous. Mm. You know, you get nerves and you get excited about something, but never this, like, almost incapacitating mm. feeling of, like, dread. And uh, And this happened when I got to the spiritual in the show, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. 
and it's in a more modern gospel style, but mixed with older spiritual. And um, it, it involves a lot of runs. It involves a certain facility, a way of moving the voice that for the longest time I had come out in a very measured way. I remember in, in undergrad, I wanted to write a thesis on the comparison of you know, various schools of Black gospel runs and Baroque ornamentation, because I think they have very similar... Absolutely. I won't say qualities, but a lot of similarities yeah. in terms of what they're meant to, to be and, and how they're extensions of expression. But I immediately was um, frozen at the opportunity or the need to express myself this way in front of people that I thought Want, did it so much better than me, mm -hmm. had had such a long and direct connection with that form of music making mm -hmm. that um, it, it really stopped me in my tracks. And I faced a feeling of otherness that I don't think I had felt before. Was it yours, your feeling, or do you feel that the people in the room felt that about you? A combination of both, but very much strongly the latter. And um, I had to find and stand on the fact that, you know, Blackness is not monolithic. Mm -hmm. We come from different places. I grew up in a Southern Black Baptist tradition, and my grandma's fried chicken is better than most people's, if not everyone's. <laughs> but <laughs> um, my fervor in singing religious music was as true and as deep, or at least I knew that that was there for me. It was the foundation of the music making I did. And I had to stand up in that mm -hmm. and not allow that to be doubted by anyone. You know, I, I, I put this work into this for years and require that it is an all black cast, require that, you know, we engage this storytelling with sensitivity. And I said, I have worked my ass off to get us all here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be afraid of us being here now. Talk about the role of the spiritual. Yes. So Juilliard was a really complicated time. Longer stories short, I left Harvard. I worked in arts administration in a lot of different ways. I thought that's how I would be involved in the arts. And one job I had was being a stage manager and then a production manager for the George Mason University opera program. And so I did a lot of administrative work. I also sat in the booth a lot with the lighting designer and figured things out. And after watching, you know, a whole season of shows, I thought I could do that. I know how this works. <laughs> and um, I gave myself the challenge of auditioning for conservatories. And if I didn't get in, I would go to business school. Mm -hmm. And so I got into Juilliard, the one conservatory I did get into, and I took it as a sign to go. And I went in really earnestly knowing I wanted to get some tools for expression to, you know, technically figure out or do something with my voice and figure out how to communicate that way. And what I found was that I was conscripted into a factory hmm. for pumping out people in a mold. And that the ideas of tools for communication was ancillary, but um, 
you're really here so that we can make you a cog. And the machine is across the street. The cog being Lincoln Center or the Met. The cog being Lincoln Center, the cog being the Met. And part of that learning, you know, putting you through your paces is German art song, is learning leader. And, you know, I remember trying to choose or find where I would enter into that. Um, and there's a common bass baritone song cycle, Winterreise. And um, I had to contend with, you know, I'm, I'm not a straight white German man and I don't experience love in this way. Mm. So I just didn't, I didn't know how to get into it, honestly. So in terms of spirituals, I feel like I didn't really find that for me until the middle of my second year there, my last year there, where you... The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. You're taught how to program a recital. Mm. Um, which has a very clear form of, you know, you sing some German art song set and a French chanson set and maybe some, you know, uh, antique Italian pieces or arias or songs. And then in the second half, you sing maybe American things. And then at l the final part <laughs> is where you you sing fun things, things that, you know, show either some of your individuality or personality or you know, some of the songs from your quote-unquote culture. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Oh, that hurt. And, and so this, um, this led me to think, well, what is that part for me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. um, and and it, it led me to, you know, exploring uh, Moses Hogan spirituals and thinking about that more deeply in terms of where did these songs come from? And it made me think more of um, what Leontine Price once said of, you know, I have sung your lead, I've sung your folk songs, and now I'm going to sing mine. Mm -hmm. And that's when she sang spirituals. Mm -hmm. And that opened up the idea of engaging spirituals as equal to or bigger than even um, the, these songs. Mm -hmm. And what I always continue to connect to was the fact that this is music that came out of necessity. Mm -hmm. This wasn't music that came out of some <laughs> superfluous need to um, express an individual feeling. Mm -hmm. This is a collective music, a music that came when people didn't know what else to say mm -hmm. or do. Mm -hmm. And in, in the darkest part or version of human existence, um, this was their gathering place. So I always knew that there was strength there. And so I started to sing these Moses Hogan spirituals. And that kind of gave me a way back into all these other things I had to do. Hmm. If I sang There's a Bomb in Gilead, 
And it's about saying, I know that there's a solution somewhere. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. Then I found this other, this German song by Brahms, and it's called Die Meinacht. And I love that song because I felt like I found something soulful in it. There's this incredible long phrase, Und die einsame Träne rinnt. So the song is about someone wandering through the night or wandering, you know, in the moonlight, um, missing someone that they love mm-hmm. that's gone away. And they see two turtle doves in a tree loving each other. And, and they say, I don't have my, my person. And after that, they, they, they cry out. And they say, um, just one tear lingers, einsame Träne. And the way that that phrase is written is two things. It's it's the melody of it, and it's also the chords. Um, and I'll just quietly. Yeah. Und die einsame Träne rinnt. But the way that it's written, it's. Und die einsame Träne rinnt. And you got to go through that. Yeah. And it's a long a phrase long. and it's a wail. <laughs> and um, I, I remember a coach once saying, you know, usually we have the pianist, you know, speed up and get through it. <laughs> oh. And he said, you you want it to slow down. And yeah. I said, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a phrase and it's a wail of this person. And I, I figured out one day that, you know, me in that song, because it was a little more open, not this particular, you know, white man wandering around missing this woman in the cold. <laughs> but... <laughs> It was it was about somebody who lost somebody that they love and and is um crying about that. And I thought about my mother mm-hmm. who died in 2009 mm-hmm. about 4 years before this. Mm-hmm. And I thought there's someone in my life that I love that I don't have. Mm-hmm. And when I you know thought on that and sang this long long phrase, I felt that it was a place to put all of that. That, you know, the reason I was able to sustain that phrase for so long was because that's how much I had, yeah. had to get out, you know? Yeah. Oh, Devon. Mm-hmm. I'm just happy that I finally got to ask you that question. It's been such a, a place of contention, in part, for me, because I feel that quite often the audiences for whom or with whom we sing those songs get some kind of out Mm. for present day sorrows. That just made me think of two things. I feel like I've been walking towards something with respect to that with um, engaging my own connection and, and sorrow with these songs to trying to talk about why that sorrow existed in the first place and who caused it mm-hmm. and how do we eradicate that. Mm-hmm. And one step along that journey has has been with the composer Taishan Sori. I asked him to set some spirituals in a set of three songs called Songs for Death. And I asked him to rip the sheen off of three spirituals of swing low sweet chariot sweet little jesus boy 
And were you there when they crucified my Lord? Because as you said, I do think audiences that we commonly perform for, largely white liberal elite audiences, um, you know, they hear these major key songs and, you know, there's a certain beauty to it, but they don't they don't go even one layer deeper. Not one. And think where mm, and think where did this come from? Why why is this here? Why does somebody need to say, you know, swing low, sweet chariot, come for to carry me home? And I, I've you know, just thought these are suicide notes. Mm. These are people at the end of their existence, at the hand of somebody else, saying, Lord, come take me. Mm. But do you, uh, we're th- gonna, you think yeah. they hear it? And this is this is where we differ. Okay, I went and pulled this out. So this is my autobiography of Frederick Douglass, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. And and I I just want to read this to you for a second. The slaves selected to go to the great house farm for the monthly allowance for themselves and their fellow slaves were peculiarly enthusiastic. While on their way, They would make the dense old woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs, revealing at once the highest joy and the deepest sadness. They would compose and sing as they went along, consulting neither time nor tune. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. To those songs... I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery. I can never get rid of that conception. Songs still follow me to deepen my hatred of slavery and quicken my sympathies for my brethren in bonds. I have often been utterly astonished since I came to the North to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart, and he is relieved by them, only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. And so, yes, Devon, you are having that experience, but the people listening, I fear, too often hear this this idea of the happy slave. Mm-hmm. And that they are not slaveholders, right? <laughs> that, as you're saying, oh, it's it's a hard thing. Yes, and... When I say I haven't figured it out yet, I say I mean that I continually realize that more and more deeply that, okay, I can have my own engagement of emotion. I can have my catharsis. I can connect to my ancestral lineage. But what does it mean to do that in front of these people? Mm-hmm. And two things one about <laughs> this past week, and then another about looking forward. This past week, I was in Cincinnati to sing John Adams' The Wound Dresser. Mm -hmm. And it's a piece that I'd 
been kind of expected to sing um, as someone who's sung a lot of Adam's music. And, and I've taken a while to get around to it because I realized I didn't, I didn't know how to get into it. It's the poetry of Walt Whitman during the Civil War, him taking care of wounded soldiers, and then perhaps having pretty complicated, if not semi-predatorial relationships with them. But I didn't know exactly how to square myself with this piece. Is this the voice that I wanted to speak through? Mm-hmm. This this white man doing these things. And I, I haven't figured my interpretation for that piece out completely. But where I settled on had to deal with what does it mean for me? And the way that I could engage it is saying, I'm here to hopefully point out your wounds that are maybe not physical, mm-hmm. but psychological the reciprocal trauma that you hold based on the traumas of what your ancestors have done and your cohort continues to do. And me speaking this song is me trying to call out all of the brokenness and the woundedness I see looking around this audience. Mm-hmm. And as as this is a, a continual journey walking towards hopefully being overt about what's going on in this in this white gaze. It was a lot to stand in and experience. And I went into it saying, okay, this is how I'm going to go about it. You know, it's like you have these wounds, your crushed head, your, you know, uh, rotting thigh, all these explicit words, you know, and saying, you know, your, your crushed ego, your rotting personhood because of what you will not face. Mm-hmm. I was emotional during the piece, but it didn't come completely to the surface until I had left after the first bow. Mm -hmm. And that's when I almost started crying Mm -hmm. because it felt like I was the man pushing a boulder up a hill Mm -hmm. and trying to point these things out. And no matter how much I tried to clearly enunciate or lay out this piece, it wasn't going to get accepted in the breadth of the experience that I had putting into it. And that was overwhelming, Mm -hmm. the feeling of not having really done anything. And also what I'm more interested in talking about right now is the people that did the harm, whose hand was on that trigger, on that noose, whose hand was signing that paper that redlined, because in order for us to hopefully move somewhere, those things have to be called out. I continue to grapple with it because I don't know if it's completely my job. What I feel, Devon, is that it's not your job or my job to fix everything, but it is your job and my job to do what we can right where our feet are. I look forward (laughs) to seeing you and being with you wherever we can be. Thank you. I can't wait. That was my conversation with opera singer Devon Tynes. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at hel.gadavis on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes-Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. 
Original music by Michelle Ndege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda. Oh, yeah.